We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. Just a quick apology for the minor but persistent audio issues on this podcast. It had been a while since I recorded an interview where I was using the wrong microphone input, but I did it again. So there's more background noise than usual in addition to some notification noises that we couldn't resolve, but everything we're saying is clear. So again, just wanted to apologize and I'm super fired up to remember to do it correctly next week. Okay. Take care, everyone. Enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another return guest, a popular author joining us this week. He was on the show June 4th, 2019, episode 129. Uh, The interview really resonated with people. And of course, he's written like six books since then. Uh, He's perhaps the most prolific chess author in the world. He's uh, won the Chess Journalist of America Award for both Chess for Hawks and as of yesterday in the zone, the greatest winning streaks 
in Chess History, a book which he briefly mentioned in our previous interview. And he's also, his newest book is one that I'm especially excited to talk about. It's called Rewire Your Chess Brain, Endgame Studies and Mating Problems to Enhance Your Tactical Ability. Obviously, we spend a lot of time talking about endgame studies as guest after guest comes on here and recommends it. So I want to hear his perspective on that. Um, so without further ado, let's bring him in. I am Cyrus Lakdawala. How are you, Cyrus? Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. Sure. Well, I've been I've had my eye on uh, this project of yours ever since you announced it in the Facebook group that you oh, founded. Really? Yeah. Um, so Cyrus uh, and I believe it's our Grandmaster Max Illingworth of Illingsworth of uh, mm -hmm. Australia co-founded a Facebook group for chess studies and compositions. Right. And at some point, Cyrus revealed he was going to be writing a book about it. And the book is out and it, it met my expectations. But I think we should let Cyrus uh, take the reins and tell us a little bit more about this project. Well, um, I I retired from tournament chess last year because, uh, I, as you know, I had a heart attack a few years back, and uh, especially rapid chess is too difficult for the heart. Like my my heart rate just keep go, goes through the ceiling when uh, I get into time pressure. So I I think just for safety reasons I retired from tournament play. So I um, I thought you know maybe. For my whole life, I've been playing competitively, and uh, I wanted to take a look at the artistic aspect of chess. So I started looking at uh, endgame studies and uh, composed mating problems, like stipulated mating problems, like mate in three, mate in four, like that. And uh, I I got fascinated by them, and uh, I just thought it was like going to a museum or something where you're you're just viewing beauty. But then a strange thing happened. It, like my online rating went up a bit, okay? And, you know, I was 59 then. Okay, nobody gets better, right, at age 59? <laughs> don't, don't tell our listeners that, Cyrus. <laughs> well, like, like my, I'm, I'm going to be 60 in like a, a few days, okay, on October 10th. So, like, you know, my goal is to not get crappier. That's the goal, right, when you reach that age. So, um Anyway, I, I noticed that when I did online puzzles, it was like my score rocketed. Like, what, what's going on? You know, like, and I realized it was the endgame studies and the uh, composed mating problems. And the weird thing is I was really, and I, I was and still am really crappy at solving them. Like, I'm, I'm a very weak solver, but yet I felt stronger. So as an experiment, I started giving it to students. This was pre-pandemic, of course, you know. I started giving them to students, and uh, I noticed some of them, like, immediately got better, like, within, like, a few months, like, three months. Uh, one shocking example was a student I have named uh, Jonathan Fry at the San Diego Chess Club, who's been, you know, his rating fluctuated, I believe, between like 1280 and 1360 for the last 20 years. And all of a sudden, I gave him a mate in two problems. And he'd been doing that for about three months. And all of a sudden, he just kept winning and winning and winning. And uh, just, just when the pandemic hit, he was uh, 1576. So he went over 200 points over his high rating. And uh, I'm sure he would have broken 1,600 had the pandemic not not occurred. And uh, roughly how old is Jonathan? He's 55. Wow, that is amazing. 
Yeah, 200-point gain at age 55. Uh, he might be 56 now. I don't know. That was last year he was 55. So, um, yeah, I, it blew my mind. You know, like 200 points? Like, how the hell can that happen, right? And I, I realize these in-game studies and composed mating problems have a true training effect power in them. And I did more research, and I realized the, the Russians realized the power of endgame studies decades ago. They knew yeah. their top players would do them, like Kasparov did them. And, uh, you know, even when I, when I started the group with Max, the end, chess endgame studies and compositions, I started with Max Illingworth. Um, I was shocked at the ratings of some of the GMs on, you know, like Nigel Short is a he's really good. I mean, yeah, and, he's and you could tell he's, he does these because he was familiar. Like, uh, I remember him saying, Oh, this isn't one of Abbott's better problems. You know, well, that means he's gone over other <laughs> problems. Right. And, uh, Alexei Shirov is a, is a constant guest there, you know, like solving. And I figured, you know, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for anyone. Yeah, and one thing I just want to add, Cyrus, for anyone kind of scoffing at the idea of Maiden 2, these are not your, like, you know, uh, rook to the back rank, rook takes rook, rook takes rook, checkmate. These are like the king is in the middle of the board and there's 21 different checks on the first move, right. and you have to figure out which one is checkmate. So they... Oh, brutally difficult. Brutally yeah, difficult. even Maiden 2s can be yeah. absolutely torturous. <laughs> but... Well, three are impossible. Like, I mean, like... They're, they're exponentially more difficult mates in three. Yeah, but of course, I probably shouldn't frame them as torturous. I think that might be part of part of uh, my my issue. Yeah, but you do a nice little manifesto at the beginning where you lay out in bullet points something like you know fifteen reasons that they're that they're uh, quite beneficial, mm -hmm. um, and a, a couple of them in particular really resonated with me. Um, one of, one of the things you said is with solving, we strive for perfection. Tournament chess players make choices based on satisfaction and minimum requirements. This looks good enough, it should win. As solvers, we slowly alter our mindset to one of a maximalist who attempts to seek a single perfect path to the position's core. And yeah, I, I could definitely relate to that. Even when I do like the chess.com tactics trainer or something like that, there comes a point where I have a feeling a move is right, and I'm just going to guess it, you know? Right, right. And, and like, uh, what, what I found out was, like, how shockingly shallow my, my thinking process it was, you know? And I, I was, like, now I'm an old guy, but I was at one point a very strong I am, right? And, like, I, I'm thinking, like, I'm, I'm a really shallow player, you know? Because <laughs> I, I fall for, you know, when, when you start doing these... Uh, in-game studies and uh, composed mating problems, you you discover your weaknesses. Yeah, and, and you tackled them yourself often, right? Like, so what was your approach to doing them for you? Uh, well, see, um, I just started doing them, and I, I was failing constantly. I mean, you know, I was getting, like, one problem out of five or six right, you know, like, and I... I vast majority of problems like were too difficult for me okay but it's not the solving that that's the amazing discovery i made it's not the solving which matters it's the it, it's a combination of straining to solve it, it 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 mimics like a tournament game there's the intensity of solving uh, is is exceptionally high compared to you know just a regular 
chess puzzles, quizzes, those are easy. Like I, you know, would you correct, correct, correct. You know, you, you do those just bam, bam, bam. But these are exceptionally difficult and you really have to strain. So it's a combination of your straining and striving for the answer mixed with, okay, I didn't get it, but I look it up now. And wow, I there's a complete original pattern, completely original pattern I'd never seen before. And you're adding to your uh, internal database just a new pattern recognition. And the the more you do of these, the the better you get. Okay. Now, listeners, just for a sec, I want to interject. All the uh, the computer noises you might hear, they're all Cyrus's fault. <laughs> I'm, I'm too stupid to figure out how to turn them off is the problem. <laughs> so so I, I apologize, but there might be a few of those throughout the interview, but uh, we're just gonna we're just gonna power through. Now bringing it back to the topic, uh, Cyrus. So one question we always grapple with is does it really matter if you set it up on a chess set? So for you, are you just looking in the book or when they're posted in the Facebook forum? Are you just visualizing from there or do you set them up? A few of them I did set up on a on an actual board. I do play. I I, I think maybe younger players actually um, see better from a diagram, and older players who were not born in the computer era, I think, uh, see better on a you know actual chessboard with pieces. And when it when the problem was really tough, and I thought maybe I had a shot at it, um, I would set it up once in a while. But you know, I mean, I'm. I had time constraints, so I really couldn't get into the problems as deeply as I wanted to. I, I really spent basically five minutes looking at each problem in the book. Okay, some of them I solved right away, like some mates and two, you know, I get right off the bat, but most of them take lo much longer than five minutes. And my rule was if I, if I felt like I was just on the wrong track, I just look up the answer after five minutes. But if I felt I was on the right track, I gave myself more time. But I believe there's 339 problems in the book, and uh, I attempted all of them. Okay, every wow. single problem I, I attempted. I mean, sometimes I, I would accidentally see the answer, which was annoying, but okay. You know, like if I saw it online and I'm trying to solve it, and then someone posts the answer, and I go, damn it, you know, like right. now I see the answer. So now I'm. I, I involuntarily solved it, you know. but um, I, I did every problem in the in the book, and uh, the vast majority I don't I don't solve. I they're too difficult. I, I can't solve them. But there, it doesn't matter whether you get them right. I wrote in the introduction to the book. Let, let's say you're you're like a you know a, between sixteen hundred and seventeen hundred player. Okay. Um, if you if you can solve three percent of the problems in the book, you will improve. It, in in fact, I think it, you could score zero in the book and you will improve, because it's that process of straining to find the solution and then looking up the answer. Somehow that has a magical property which improves you. I, I don't know why, but it does. It's it's way more effective than doing, uh, you know, just normal chess puzzles. Yeah, and if you think about all again, all of the the super strong guests I've had on the show who've talked about solving studies. I mean, it's and as you say, a lot of them uh, have either Soviet ties or at least like they might have had a trainer from the Soviet era. But I think of a lot of it does go back to that. 
We're taking a break from my chat with Cyrus to tell you about ChessKid.com, the official scholastic extension of Chess.com. Are you a scholastic coach or a parent with a child who's interested in learning or playing, but you want them to be safe and have fun doing it? ChessKid.com will help you attain these goals, and my old friend, Fun Master Mike, will also have your child laughing out loud while on the site. Yes, he does sing an Eagles song when introducing the idea of Desperado. You can also have your kids play chat-free live games, do puzzles, and you can track all of their progress. ChessKid is being used by entire schools and districts all over the world and is now in Spanish, French, German, and Russian, in addition to English. Signing up is free, and if you want premium features for a limited time, you can enter the promotional code HOMEFUN to save $10 on a yearly membership. And if you're a coach, ChessKid offers bulk discounts and lets you organize tournaments and maintain club leaderboards. So go to ChessKid.com or check the show notes for any links you might need. Back to the interview with Cyrus. Um, So Cyrus, we have a uh, listener question that I want to jump in with, although you've already touched on some of the answers, Mm -hmm. but but not all of it. So I'm just going to read it. It's from longtime uh, friend and Patreon supporter of the podcast, Chris Wainscott. And Chris says, he says, says, uh, first of all, let me say the Capablanca move by move was one of the best chess books I ever read in terms of its effect on my performance after reading a book. Um, Now on to my question. He says, in a perfect world, someone solving endgame studies would sit there as long as it took to solve one. But in the real world, I'd like to know how long you think is an appropriate amount of time for someone to attempt to find the solution under two different scenarios. Scenario, Scenario one, the solver has latched onto what they believe the correct idea to be but are just trying to work out the finer details such as move order or sidelines. Scenario two, the, the, the solver is completely stumped and not able to find anything that seems even remotely part of the solution. Okay, scenario one, I give myself 15 minutes maximum. Like where it, I think I, I'm onto the answer, like I've, I've, I, I've latched onto a portion of the answer, I give myself 15 minutes and if I can't solve it in 15, but I, I work 60 hours a week. I mean, other people could give it an hour. You know, if you have the time, give it whatever you want. But for me, I give it 15 minutes max. Okay. If, if I think I'm on to the answer, if I'm completely clueless, you know, where I just know that like, you know, you can give me eternity and I won't solve the problem, you know, uh, then I give it five minutes and then look up the answer. But, okay. but it has to be, I have to stress this, it has to be an intense five minutes, like really straining, like you're, like you're in time pressure in a tournament game and you're desperate to find the answer. You have to try to mimic that, like that extreme uh, effort. I, I think that is very critical. You can't just sort of um, lackadaisically solve like, oh, well, let's try this and then I'll look up the answer. That, that I think... You're not going to get as much benefit when you do that. I mean, you will just by looking up the answers. I think there's benefit if you just don't even try to solve and look up the answers, okay? Because you get brand new patterns that you've never seen before. Uh, But uh, I think with that straining, it adds an element, uh, an extra training element, which really helps. Yeah, and as you say, I do think there's it's the closest thing to mimicking tournament chess. Um, I mean... Except there is an answer, which in tournament chess there often isn't. Um, right. But one thing I like in the way that you arrange the book is that it's not like in in order of difficulty necessarily. You know, like uh, like that that there it's a chronological order. Is that right? Yeah, they're 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 uh, done in chronological order, and you may get a, a 
super easy problem followed by a like oh my god problem <laughs> you know like where you know mm-hmm. possible to solve if you were given five years to solve it problem but actually I'm working on a new book uh, on chess tactics it's called chess tactics move by move and in that one I am doing by theme because I have to because you know you're if you're covering double attack you have to cover only yeah. attacks that chapter and if you're covering Zugzwang, it must be Zugzwang. I'm forced in that book to do it by themes, but generally I don't like to give away the theme to students. I, I find that like it's a little bit of cheating. It's like training wheels on your bicycle. You, you, need, um, you need to mimic a tournament game. Nobody taps you on the shoulder in a tournament game and says, hey, there's a you know, night fork combination here. You sense that there's a combination. You, you feel it. You feel that there's a combination, but you don't know that knight fork is part of the deal. I think that makes it more difficult and more of a challenge, and also more effective. But yeah, I can't. You like on this tactics book, I I have to put them in order. You know, it's not the end of the world. I mean, I, I have to put them in uh, category. Yeah, that makes sense. And for any listeners wondering, I mean, one thing, one theme I can tell you from this show, Cyrus, is we interview so many strong players, so. A lot of them recommend endgame studies, but then we have listeners whose chess strength runs the gamut, you know, from people brand new to chess all the way up to grandmasters. So I think a lot of people on the lower end of the spectrum are like, okay, I get it. I should do endgame studies, but I can't find any for my level, you know? Like, I think so many of them are so abstruse that it's it's tough for them. So basically, that's a long way of asking, like, what do you think the minimum rating is that that could benefit from from your book? There's there's no minimum rating for any any uh, endgame study or composed mating problem. There there is no minimum. It, let's say you your your score is zero. Okay, out of out of the 339 problems, your score is zero. It's still good to do endgame studies and mating problems because at least you still have the straining for the answer, and then you still have the the new pattern in your mental database. You know, it's it's one new pattern per, and and actually that's not true. Multiple, I mean, some some studies you get like five or six patterns from the study. It's like like you have uh, basically you have like uh, in most studies you have like two or three holy crap moments. You know where you go, oh my god, you know does that actually work? How could that? Right. Be? You know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um... So just a couple more things on on this book. Number one, um, um, I wanted to so number one, I wanted to mention Elizabeth Spiegel, um, mutual friend um, who's been on the podcast. Of course, she she got this book and was a big fan. So for any chess trainers listening, it's a uh, great material for that. Um, it's available on uh, on Kindle am- amongst other formats, and definitely like great value because obviously Cyrus is saying there's 329 puzzles. I mean, you might spend 15 minutes a puzzle. You could even spend more. So it could keep you busy for a long time. Um, but one other thing is, so you mentioned, okay, um, you know, you might, someone lower rated might struggle with these and might buy it and get none right. But psychologically, that can be very difficult. So what advice do you have, Cyrus, for someone who says, okay, you say that, but I'm going to, but I'm just going to quit if I'm not getting any right. How do, how do, how does someone adjust to that? Well, you can't have uh, expectations, like ridiculous expectations when you try to solve these. I mean, these are this, this is some of the most difficult 
this is some of the most difficult chess I've ever seen. Okay, it far surpasses uh, most games. I mean, Im imagine the deepest combination ever made. You know, like I mean, uh, Reti Alakin, where he sacked a rook, and fifteen moves later, you you understand why. Well, that's like you know eighty percent of the problem. <laughs> right. right. So, are you going to are you going to solve a Reti Alakin every single time? Of course not. I mean, look. I, I told you I'm an I am, and I I don't think I solved more than twenty five percent, twenty percent of the problems. I may I may even be exaggerating. It may even be less, but I'm guessing I solved like maybe a quarter or less of the problems in the book. And if an I am okay, admittedly a crappy old I am now. Too <laughs> modest. <laughs> but you know. You might be old, but you're not crappy, Cyrus. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. I, I, <laughs> uh, but um, I'm not a good solver. You know, there there's people on that on my group. Um, it it astounds me. Like, I mean, um, Satanic McCurthy. I, I hope I'm uh, pronouncing his last name right. Um, he's sort of a chess-based India go-to guy for composed mating problems. He doesn't really do endgame studies. He, he posts only, he's an admin on my group. And he posts, uh, uh, he's, he's like, a, like a professor of composed mating problems, okay? He wow. knows everything about everything. Another one is Stephen Dowd, uh, Professor Stephen Dowd, uh, also an admin. It's like they, they know everything about endgame studies and problems. They know the person who, they know the, the biography of the person who, who uh, compose the problem. They're familiar with the problem. They know the theme. They'll go, ah, oh, yes, uh, that's a Novotny. And I'm going, what's a Novotny? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, but these guys are infinitely better solvers than I am. And, you know, they're much lower rated. Like I asked Satanic, what's his rating on, you know, like he said, oh, I'm unrated. Well, okay, that doesn't mean anything. He could be incredibly high rated, you know, but uh, he said his chess.com rating is something like 1800. Well, I'm, I'm, I went, what? You know, like, how could you solve problems like this and have an 1800 rating? And it's a, maybe, maybe this, there is a portion of a different uh, skill set involved with it. I think some of these brilliant solvers, I, I get the feeling are like 3000 strength tactically. And, uh, you know, 1,000 strength positionally, you know, I, I, I get the feeling when I, when I discuss with them that the, the reason their ratings, they're not GMs is because of uh, weakness strategically. I think these problems mainly help with your tactics. The in-game studies help with both. Okay. But the composed mating problems, almost always, it's just pure math. It's, it'll help your tactics. Endgame studies, you have to find the theme, you know, and that's the positional part of it. Like, I'm really good at finding the theme. Like, I, I can look at a problem and I, you know, instantly I kind of know, ah, this is what I need to do. But I'm really crappy at actually the mechanics of doing it, you know. Right. I bungle the mechanics constantly. Yeah. And one one last thing on this book before we hit a couple other topics, Cyrus, I actually I liked how you you organize them into themes. Um, and obviously, this is going to be audio only, even though uh, I can see you as we record this. Um, but to the extent that you can without like chess positions, could you 
I mean, we already talked about made in twos, but could you explain a few of the other common themes that, that like the buckets that different chess studies can go in? Well, um, you know, I chapter one would be like ancient themes, you know, ancient problems. Okay? Oh yeah, sorry, can I interject for a second? So the very first puzzle you shared in the book, the one with the, uh, where the white king is stalemated and the black king is on H8 and you have to uh, chase it to the other side of the board in order to sack the queen for the bishop on H3. Um, oh, that one. Okay, you're talking about the guy gold problem. Yeah. I, yeah. So I shared that on Twitter right when I started reading the book. I know you're uh -huh. not on Twitter, but it got like huge amount of engagement. People absolutely loved that problem. Oh, really? really? Yeah. See, when I yeah. looked at that problem, uh, I when I looked at the is it is that a guy gold problem? I forgot. Is that? Yeah, I'll I'll have to double oh, check. No, but, I think it's a uh, bluffy. I think that might have been a bluffy problem. I I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> I'll find it while you talk. Go ahead. Anyway, um, in that problem, uh, white is up a queen for a bishop, but the king is paralyzed. You know, it's it's like a you know a Jurassic Park uh, instant <laughs> right? I mean, you the king is the white king is completely hopelessly stuck on G one. It will never move. Okay, and so how do you? How do you beat a position where you can't checkmate with a lone queen? There's no square on the board where there's a checkmate with a lone queen. And uh, there's nothing to attack. There's nothing to attack in black's position. The bishop is protected by the pawn. All the pawns cover each other. The bishop protects the pawn, which protects the bishop. So there's absolutely nothing to attack in that position. And yeah. I realized right away, oh, okay, I knew the plan right away. Uh, chase the king to a1 and then sacrifice the queen on on the bishop and you have to chase the black king outside the square of the newly passed g pawn uh, i mean i this might yeah it's a lot to, it's a lot to follow online but i will verify it is blathy 1962 okay. and i'll post a screenshot in the in the show description of the puzzle um, for anyone who's interested in checking it out but but getting it back to the themes so I don't even know how to categorize that one. But how would so what general themes are there that people can look for when they're solving a study? Like what what framework should they have in mind? The themes are are everything, you know, every possible theme that you can think of. Zugzwang, uh, double attack, uh, you know, I mean just every possible chess theme that you can think of is in there. Okay. It, and many, like I said, many endgame studies, you have like two, three, four themes within the study. Uh, but uh, it, all of chess is in, encompassed in it. There's no, there's no theme, no tactical theme that's not in there. Okay, cool. So yeah, again, a hearty recommendation of this book, but I wanna talk to, I wanna pivot to sort of chess improvement more generally, Cyrus. Mm -hmm. But first I wanna take a break and hear from our friends at Chessable. As always, Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable is a chess learning website that utilizes its move trainer technology to help you learn and remember opening lines, tactical patterns, and end games. It is endorsed by GM Magnus Carlsen and features courses from IM John Bartholomew, Sam Shanklin, Wesley So, and so many others. Chessable has over 100,000 members and features hundreds of courses, both for free and for purchase. So if you haven't checked it out yet, please go to chessable.com and take a look around. Back to the interview. 
Okay, and we are back. And Cyrus, of course, a lot of what we talked about vis-a-vis chess studies uh, relates to chess improvement, but I also wanted to talk about it a bit more generally. And we have another question from the Patreon mailbag. This one is from Cody Noble. And Cody says, uh, is there a, a piece of chess advice for improving players that you find overrated or underrated? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I, 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 this is like self-incriminating, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I think opening study is overrated. Okay. I think it's very important. Okay. It's very important, but, uh, I think it's absolutely ridiculous for a 1400 to need to know the dragon 23 moves deep. Okay, you're not going to get those positions from a practical standpoint. If you're playing other 1400s, uh, you're going to be out of book by about move 10 or 12. Okay, and we there's a it's like fashionable to do it, but um, I think the time should be spent equally between. Oh, like one third opening studies, one third going over games. You know, the games of great players too. Not just not just new games, but old games too. Uh, but w- people just don't have a sense of chess history, and I think it's very important to go over games of Capablanca, game, games of Lasker, Steinitz. Uh, I, I went over the games of Greco. You know, I mean, yeah, sixteen hundred. You know, but um, and the. And, and of course, keep up, you know, look at the, we watch, um, you know, Carlson at Al, you know, playing, and those are, those are incredibly useful too. But, um, and the last, of course, is tactics, puzzles, in-game studies, and composed mating problems. But one-third, one-third, one-third is what I recommend to students. The problem is right now, it's like opening Opening work ninety percent, everything else ten percent, and I, I think that's a, not an efficient way to study. And, and I mean, I hate to say that since I've written like fifty thousand opening books, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, it, but really, my my feeling is that uh, people, whatever I say, they're still going to study openings ninety percent. By the way, yeah. But, but my feeling is that uh, lower opening study a little bit, you know, make it one third of your time, make it uh, one third opening study, one third games, one third tactics puzzles, end game studies, and compose mating problems. Okay, good good advice. Yeah, and you're not the first opening author to cop to that, that, that people should spend less time on openings, especially at the lower level. Although, again, that doesn't mean zero time. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to understand the concepts of, uh, of any opening that you're playing, if not memorize 20 moves of theory. So with this emphasis on opening um, on endgame studies, as you mentioned in the one third devoted to tactics. So how much has that as someone who does a who has a lot of students, so who gives a lot of lessons, how much has your approach shifted on based on the um, the rewire your chess brain project? Well, I mean, it's like a new added element because before it was uh, it was opening study. My my students, no matter what I tell them, they they want the vast majority want to work on their openings. Okay, and uh, I tell them to go over games of this or that or this, you know, whatever. But just going over games and reading, just reading a lot of books with annotated games. I think annotated games are very important. But uh, 
the third component I always thought was just tactics puzzles. But like I say, I added endgame studies and uh, composed mating problems. Now when I do lessons, uh, my typical uh, lesson would be half the lesson will be endgame studies and mating problems and second half on an opening. Okay. And where does, like, I know you, you especially back in the your ICC days, a Blitz monster. Where does the Blitz fit into this? Does it does it count? Uh, do you do you work on it? Um, blitz helps with your tactics and your openings because it gives you instant experience. Like if you let's say you, I'm not one of those guys that tells their students never play Blitz. I want them to play Blitz, but not addictively. The problem that's the other problem. There's two addictions in chess. One is opening study. The other is online blitz, especially stupid blitz, like, oh, yeah. ultra bullet, you know, oh, that's really going to help you, ultra bullet. <laughs> right. It's not even chess. It's like, it's more like uh, martial arts, you know, it's it's like hand hand movement. It's more, it's not chess. Uh, but the slower the game, the better online. But of course, that leads to the other problem is like about uh, 25% of your opposition may be cheaters. And that's very annoying. I mean, I constantly get uh, messages, oh, you got eight points returned to you because you played a cheater. You right. know? I, I never, I, I cannot fathom why people cheat in chess. Like, I mean, I, I understand they, they cheat out of greed and maybe out of uh, wanting people to admire them in tournaments. But why would you cheat when you're anonymous? Like, who, like why would you set up a computer and cheat other people you're rating in blitz games. Like, what? What's the benefit of that? Like, I just don't get it. Like, but they, yeah, so many people. Uh, I read a I read that uh, a study where cheating is is skyrocketing in the world. It's just like uh, fifty years ago, people cheated way less than they do now. I don't know why. I mean, I, I don't. And this is across fields, not just related to chess or everything. Everything. Wow. In everything. They they lie on their uh, resumes. They um, you know they cheat on college entrance exams. They cheat on every possible thing. You know. Wow. Huh. Yeah. I don't know. And Cyrus, I know you you work as you've said sixty hours a week, so you may not be so up on it. But since it came up, I can't resist asking you about this. Uh, Pro Chess League Chess.com controversy. Mm-hmm. Are you up on this? this no, I'm, um, I'm not okay. up on it, but I, I heard that the, is it the Armenian team that won the gold that was kind of like busted for cheating? Banned, yeah. I mean, I yeah. don't know if you, yeah. I mean, Chess.com made the de- decision that they were cheating and they're still protesting and um, denying vociferously. So there's there's a lot of talk online. Especially, I believe it was the first sport, uh, Tigran Petrosian, not, of course, huh. the former world champion, right. uh, the, the current Tigran Petrosian, who was, uh, and it's rare that chess.com publicly out someone. Um, in fact, they generally go out of their way not to, but this was a unique circumstance because GM Wesley So actually publicly accused him, which a lot of people, I'm rightfully, in my opinion, have, have objected to his the way he handled that. But that put chess.com kind of in an awkward position, and now they have. Uh, sort of very publicly ban them, and he's still protesting. Um, there are people, there are people like Peter Hein Nielsen just did kind of a quick engine check, and the correlations um, between the correlations were not off the charts as they are between 
the way he played in the top engine move as they often are. So it's a it's a bit shrouded in mystery. It's a more interesting mm -hmm. case than some of them. But I mean, my personal opinion is uh, chess.com has no incentive to try to, I mean, some people are saying because it was the American team that lost in St. Louis and chess.com is an American company that they're gonna like risk their business and their reputation. Oh, by, no. No yeah, way. but uh, to me, um, yeah, I'm. I, I assume that they weighed this decision very carefully. Let's say, um, but anyway, yeah, it's it's a bit of a of a mess and a blight on the game. And yeah, it'd be I nice. Have, if, oh, sorry, I, I have uh, seen. I I've been accused of cheating. Okay, like when I when I was in my prime, uh, I remember I played uh, Miguel Quinteros in the nineteen nineties. Okay, GM Quinteros. And uh, I beat him something like eight and a half, one and a half out of a 10 game, three minute match. Okay. And uh, he, he accused me of cheating and uh, I wasn't cheating. I've never cheated. Okay. And so you can be accused of cheating, but uh, I think, you know, when they put it through these programs and <clears throat> if they just keep matching where it's almost impossible for a human to find so many computer moves. I believe, I believe the program then. Yeah. I had a, I had a student, I, I won't, I won't say his name, but who got publicly busted for cheating in the pro chess league. Okay. I, I had a student too, a, a former student. He, he wasn't my student then, but uh, he kicked butt and then he was, uh, you know, banned and caught, you know? So it's a, it's a temptation. It's a temptation because everybody wants to be a hero, right? I mean, like I would love to play in a tournament and beat eight GMs and uh, have everybody say, "Oh my God, Cyrus is a kick butt. Look at look at how great he plays," you know. But it's not you playing. You yeah. cheater. So what? It's like you have to still look in the mirror and you know you're a fraud. So for that reason, I. I I think it's a dumb thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in regard to your student, I've another thing I've seen online a lot is people say, um, well, there, there are false accusations and such and such friend of mine was accused and mm -hmm. I know them. They didn't do it. People will say. Right. Right. And go, go ahead. I'm just always skeptical. I mean, you never know what's going on behind, like, you know, behind closed doors, whether it be in someone's personal life or, someone's personal chess life. Um, so again, it just gets back to incentives. And I mean, honestly, I mean, the, the incentives of the cheaters are hard to parse, but certainly um, the incentives of uh, these websites to falsely ban people just don't exist. So um, they might make, you know, they've admitted to one or two mistakes over the years, but we're talking about an infinitesimal percentage of their overall banning. So um, just, yeah, it's a... It's a the odds are clearly in favor of the, the site because they don't want to accuse you. Okay. It could get them into legal trouble. It creates unpleasantness. It creates acrimony. Uh, they, they desperately don't want to accuse you. If they accuse you, they're pretty damn sure you cheated. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They're nearly certain that you cheated. I mean, there, there is that, like I say, I've been, it, not just this one time I, I was accused probably, uh, you know, in my whole uh, career, um, 
maybe 10 times of cheating. And I, I wasn't cheating. I'd never cheated, you know. But players accuse me, you know, there's no way you could beat me that many games. Yes, I can, you know. Yeah, well, no, but I mean, it's different when like a random individual accuses you, you know. Right, right. It, it, people accuse. Like a sore loser, basically. Time. I mean, I think people yeah. people falsely. Now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like a shadow, like a caricature of my old strength, and now nobody accuses me. Of <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, you're begging them to accuse you. <laughs> Don't you think that was a little suspicious? <laughs> I, I want someone to accuse me of cheating, but I blunder so much that there's no way they think I'm cheating. Yeah. I mean, and last thing on the cheating topic is I also see people, in addition to the people saying, oh, how could they ban them if they're not going to publish the evidence, so on and so forth. But then you also see people saying they don't ban enough people, you know, which yeah, yeah. which might be true. But that's like, you know, they say about referees in sports, if people are complaining on both sides, they're, you know, maybe they're doing an OK job. Right. Um, so that's where I come down. But I, I know everyone has different opinions, but mm -hmm. it's just it's been a bit of a lightning rod in the chess world lately. So when you when you mentioned cheating, it made me think of it. Um, but. Last major topic, Cyrus, is I want to talk about you. I mean, you have so many books that I think I think you're at 46 by my count. If I'm, well, I'm actually working on my 50th right now. 50th, wow. But I three that are. Uh, I let me think. Is it three? Uh, I think it's three are unpublished. They're still kind of like in the edit area. Okay. Like there's three that are. It might be two, but I, I know I'm working right now on my 50th book. That is just incredible. I can't tell you the name of it, because uh, the subject, because New Interest does not like to uh, announce in advance. Every man is okay with it. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I, I can't, it's a it's it's on a great player, but it's, I, I can't tell you what I'm working okay. on. Okay, cool. Well, well, looking forward to seeing what that is as well. But I also wanted to talk about, since it won an award, the um, chess journalists of a uh, Chess Journalist of America, um, Educational Book of the Year, I believe. Did I get that right? Um, for um, In the Zone, um, a book about chess streak. So when when you told me that you had just won that award yesterday, congratulations, by the way, um, I picked it up and it's, it's cool. I mean, um, I really enjoyed, there's deep historical context in it. So why don't you just, I mean, we teased it a bit in our last interview, but why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit more about that book? Well, I, I got the idea of um, writing a book about great winning streaks through chess history. And uh, with two purposes, I just, I just, uh, I like books on chess history. I think it's not covered enough and not enough people appreciate chess history. My students, like the young ones, are completely clueless. Like you, if you ask them, you know, about something about Larson, they'll uh, they'll tell you, is he, does he play at the San Diego Chess Club? You know, right, yeah. You know, they're just totally clueless. Like they know who Bobby Fischer is, but you know, past that, that you, I'm not sure they know who Korchnoi is, or you know, they they have like no grasp of chess history. They may have seen a Morphe video once in a while, so they know who Morphe is. But, you know, Blackburn, forget it. Okay, Steinitz, forget it. They, they don't know who these people are. And uh, I think it's very important to study these great players because um, it, it puts the present-day chess, it puts present-day chess into context. 
it's when you don't study, I see it as like um, some beginner, you know, it's your first piano lesson and the, the teacher wants to teach you the scales, but you go, no, I, I want to do Chopin's uh, first piano concerto. Please teach me that in my very first lesson. I, I think without history, you just don't have context. Okay, we are back. We took a little break for me to attempt some tech support for, for Cyrus, but uh, it didn't work. So there might be one or two notifications uh, uh, while we finish up this interview. So I apologize for that. But bringing it back to in the zone. So Cyrus, I was really impressed with um, the depth of the historical knowledge as you were discussing um, before uh, we we took a break. Um, so how much of this, so you mentioned a lot of people don't have the historical knowledge that you feel they should and it would help their chest. How much of this was research for you and how much of it was just because you're a strong player and because you've written 50 books, you already knew it? I knew, I knew a lot of it, but a lot of it was research too. I mean, I, you know, details were research. Like I didn't know, uh, you know, that Paulson took so long on, on his moves. There was one, um, there was one thing I read where, he took eight hours for his moves in that in one game, where uh, Morphy took an hour. And uh, now, one problem is, you know, you get contradictory stories when you when you look up when you try to do historical research. You'll one guy will say one thing, <coughs> and another chess historian will say something else. So it's it's tricky. You don't know if it's absolutely true. But one person said that, like Morphy, um, you know, the, he was actually like crying out of frustration. He was such a gentleman; he wouldn't say, "God damn it, hurry up, Paulson." You know? <laughs> right. He was such a gentleman; he just sat there for the whole nine hours of the game. You know, this was in the American Chess Congress. You know, but um, I knew about I knew portions of it, and a lot of it I I researched. But okay. the other port, the other reason I wrote the book is because, um, you know, it's a great mystery why you're in the zone. You know, everybody's been in the zone, you know, where you, you just know you're going to win that tournament and everything just falls into place. Like you're, it's, it's almost like magic where, you know, like it's almost like you think it and then it happens, you know, <laughs> where, um, Everything you touch turns to gold, okay? It, like you, you know, you, you just bring out a few pieces and the guy collapses and resigns. You know, you beat some super strong player in 20 moves and you, you crush everyone and win the tournament. Everybody has had those those experiences. Like, you know, you, you could, everybody has had streaks just where you feel invincible. And I wanted to crack the mystery of why we have these streaks. And you know, the converse is like um, why we have slumps. If you figure out the streaks, I think you can maybe figure out why we go into slumps. Slumps are sort of easy. Uh, you know, your girlfriend or wife yells at you, and then you go to your tournament, and then you hang your queen in four moves. I mean, I remember one time, it, I think it was 1998, uh, but uh, I I was the state champion, Southern California state champion. They, they, they cut California into two states because it's so large. Um, and I was defending my title and it was the night before the first round. And my wife, Nancy was having a bad dream and, uh, she was flailing around 
And I woke her up because I want I, I wanted her to get out of her nightmare, right? And so I woke her up, and then this giant German elbow came swinging at my my eye, okay, and just bam, I got this black eye because she swung her elbow and hit me because she was still flailing about in her dream, right? And so like, ow, I have a black eye, <laughs> and I didn't get any sleep for the rest of the night, okay. Round one, uh, I'm playing the lowest rated guy in the tournament. He was about 20 through 50. He was not he was not weak, okay? That was about the lowest rated player in the state championship. And I remember I got my queen trapped on about move 15. You know, it was like, oh, no. I went pawn grabbing like an idiot, and I got my queen trapped. And it was like, oh, no, you know. We, we know why we go into slumps. I mean, you, you, you can have a fight with your girlfriend or wife or your spouse, you know. You can, uh, you can be sick. You can have insomnia the night before. Um, you can just get unlucky, you know. Like, nobody is up on every line that they play in their openings, right? And you, 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 everybody has a few lines where you go, oh, God, please don't play into this. I don't remember this variation, and sure as anything, the guy goes right into that line, like no, right. no. and like you, you lose the game because you you don't know what you're doing and you forgot, but you you haven't looked at that line for a long time and you forgot. You can just get plain old unlucky where they keep playing like all your opponents just keep playing variations that you're weakest in, you know, just by magic. Every op- opponent, please don't play this. Oh no, he played it, you know. So we know why we go into slumps. Uh, it could be just loss of confidence. You lose a few games in a row. You lose your confidence, and you start second-guessing your moves. I, I, like when I, when I was in my prime, um, I was pretty confident that when I, when I played some move, I didn't hang something. You know, And I look at some of my old games, and it looks like, it was played by somebody else. Like I'd have three pieces hanging. Like today I'd be, you know, that would scare the crap out of me. Oh my God, three pieces are hanging. But I, I was confident in my calculation then. I mean, as you get older, you have little uh, chips in your calculation. You have little blind spots. And then that alters your move choices. That in turn alters your move choices because you want to play safer. You don't, you're a little bit more afraid of tactics. By the way, that's one of the great benefits of the endgame studies and the uh, composed mating problems is you stop being afraid of tactics because your tactics start improving immediately. Like within three to six months, they they improve. But um, so we know why we go into slumps, but it's very difficult to say why we why we go on streaks. You know, like why do we go on streaks? I remember. Uh, the state championship. It was the first state championship I, I won. Uh, it was, I believe, 1994. And um, I scored six and a half out of seven. And that was like a, a state championship record at the time. But it was it, it was just like I didn't even try. I just, you know, I just bring out a few pieces and then they'd, they'd collapse. Like really strong players would collapse. I don't know why that happened. Like, I, I mean, like, what is the, what is the deal with that? So what I tried to do was I tried to analyze why that, that particular tournament, that particular player was in the zone. Now, of course, this is all speculation, you know, but like, um, 
you know, and sometimes it's just because the guy is ten times stronger than anyone. You know, why did why did Morphy win the American Chess Congress of I forgot the year eighteen fifty seven I think I forgot the year, but um, you know, he was ten times stronger than everyone. That's right, you know. But but there are other there are other factors probably. Part of it is it's like it feeds the when one player goes on a streak, all the other players in the tournament get scared. They get really scared. I I compared to um, as I recall in the introduction of the book, there's that Star Trek episode where um, there was this entity that that came on the Enterprise and it fed on people's fear. <laughs> Like and the way to kill the entity or make it go away was they all stopped being afraid of it and then then it went away. But um, like you know like Caruana, okay, he starts seven zero in St. Louis, uh, twenty four. Yeah. What the hell? He beats Carlson with black. Like he beat. I, 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 my memory is so bad. I think he beat Topolov round one with black, but I can't I can't remember. But you know. He beats like Topolov, Aronian, then Carlson with black. Like, what the hell? Right? Yeah, that one's <laughs> even more shocking in hindsight. I mean, obviously, he's he's number two in the world. He's an amazing player. But, I mean, just to run roughshod over everyone in the modern age is just crazy. Well, think about it. Okay, like, you know, Carolina and Carlson and Karyakin and Carlson, they played in their total of the two matches, they played 24 classical time control games without one decisive result, not one. It was it was 6-6, Karyakin Carlson, 6-6, Karwana Carlson. Okay, these guys don't lose that often, right? And to, to beat that level of player seven in a row is mind-bending. You know, like there's one streak in the book where it's the Steinitz-Blackburn match. Now, Blackburn, I don't know if at the time he was ranked number two in the world, but chess metrics has him number two in the world for like a big chunk of time, okay? And Stein, Steinitz beat the snot out of him. He beat him 7-0. Yeah. Uh, that was a different era, you know? That was a different era. But even Bobby Fischer taking out Taimanov and Larson 7-0, I mean 6-0, 6-0, is not as amazing as Caruana taking out his opposition 7-0. And then he just coasted for the rest of the tournament, essentially. I think he won one or two more, but he just coasted after that because he was so far ahead. I think he won the tournament by something like three points. Like, how in the hell do you do that? You know, like, that's impossible, you know? Yeah, it's crazy. Something clicked, okay? Something clicked with him. He was in the zone, clearly, right? I mean, he was – everything he touched just turned to gold. Like, he – it, it was almost like he didn't even try. Is he just played normal moves, and his opponents freaked out. And it was that it was that uh, entity on the Enterprise where they were all scared. I mean, uh, I remember Kasparov remarked. Uh, I think it was Vashia Lagrav, where you know, with the white pieces, he was like busted after twenty moves. And Kasparov said, "I'm sorry, you know, like uh, that's that's just a psychological thing. That's not." Caruana playing so great that, you know, Vashi Lagrav is busted after 20 moves or so with white. Okay. That's just the fear factor, you know? So, yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's funny how it works. I mean, human psychology is uh, uh, quite the mystery. I enjoyed the Aoyakin section. That was the one, since I just picked it up yesterday, I didn't have time to read the whole thing, but that was the one I dug into because you said something that resonated with me, which is, and, you know, everyone's, all, I mean, obviously he's an all-time great player, but I haven't read his games collection, much to my shame. So I sort of feel like I'm not as uh, well-versed in, in his um amazing collection of games as I should be. So just to, to see his game after game with just sheer domination was, was fun to see. And sorry for the noises on my end now, people. I don't know if you guys are, are hearing them. But um, one more question before we let you go, Cyrus. Um, this is another one from Cody Noble who sent a list of questions and said, pick, pick a few. So this is the second one that I picked. Um, he, and it's on the topic of chess history. So he says, uh, this seems like a fun one based on Cyrus's knowledge of elite players from history up to the present. Let's say you're the coach in a must-win game and you can substitute in different players from any time period during the game, like baseball does with pitching. Who would you have as your opener, your middle game player, and your closer? So oh your closer God. would play the end game. And I'm putting him on the spot with this That's one for the record. Because there's so many to choose from. And you also have to choose them from the context of the era, okay? Yeah. You know, like uh, Carlson knows openings way better than Bobby Fischer, but I think Bobby Fischer was the better opening player, as was Alekin, as was Bodvinik. They yeah. dominated in the opening, those three, okay? So it would be between uh, openings um, would be either Bobby Fischer Bodvinik or Alekin, because they they obsessively studied opening. They they deeply into the middle game. Bodvinik was the first to really go from opening all the way into the middle game, deeply, deeply. Okay, so I can't you you take your pick out of those three for opening. Uh, middle game, oh man, like wow, there, there'd be there's so many like. Alekin in his prime, Kasparov in his prime, Morphy in his prime, you know, just uh, Carlson, you know, just uh, even Caruana is a monster in the middle game. Uh, that one is a really tough one. But if I had to go with one, I would pick Kasparov. Yeah, can't go wrong. <laughs> or, or, or Alekin, you know, just co complex positions. They, they middle game positions, they were monsters in their prime. And end game would be... Um, I I would go with uh, Carlton, Fisher, Capablanca, Korchnoi, in game. Hey, take your pick out of those. Okay. You know, but uh, Fisher too was just some of the games he won that bishop ending against Timonov, you know, in his match. Like holy, yeah. God. I mean, so th those would be my choices. Very Good hard stuff. One, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, excellent, um, excellent stuff. Yeah, and listeners, so you know what to study if you want to work on a particular aspect of your game. Although, as Cyrus said, if it's opening, just l limit the time a little bit. It doesn't doesn't mean don't study it. And again, it also, of course, depends on your level. The higher you get, the more important uh, openings become. Um, but Cyrus, it was good to catch up. I, I look forward to seeing what else you have in the pipeline, uh, that which is revealed and and not yet revealed, but. Um, but keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, thanks for having me. Sure. Yeah. And for anyone who is on Facebook, who is not in the end game uh, study group, I recommend you joining and Facebook is probably the best way to reach you too. Right, Cyrus? Right. 
right? Okay, excellent. Go ahead. No. Okay, so I will link to that. Yeah, and congrats on the award. And and uh, take care, Cyrus. You too, Ben. Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about Perpetual Chess. You can spread the word via word of mouth or positive reviews on podcast platforms. We are up to 98 written reviews on Apple Podcasts, and only one of them aggravates me. Amazing support. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFischel1, or join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. You should also check out the Perpetual Chess Instagram page. But more than anything, I want to express my gratitude to those who provide financial support to the show. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable.com for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page to help sustain and improve the show. And while they're at it, find out about future guests and send in some great questions. So without further ado, I'd like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. They are Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess blog, the Apprentice Twitch channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Andy Ryerson, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Charlotte Chess Center, the Chess Central's Chess blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Drake Domingue, I am Eric Rosen, Firas Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Harfs, Greg Natal, I am Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, Lucio Casada Silva, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, LilaAnalysis.com for cloud-based Leela Engine Analysis, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerd Naze Twitch channel, Peter Sadi, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Robert Coucher, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stenix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, Wayne Beam, and I would also like to thank Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Andy Ryerson, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Anidi Deer, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskacek, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dirk Decker, Drake Domingue, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, FM, Donnie Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latarte Lavoie, Frank Tortoris MD, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barter, Giovanni Russo, Han Schut, Harish Srinivasan, 
Jacob Kovach, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Horland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, JJ Stranad, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Reiforth, Laura Boyowski, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Arispide, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solom, Neil Bruce, Nigmat, Milad Janov, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalvo, Richard Hollenbach, Robert Turner, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, The Say Chess YouTube Channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Shane Unger, Stefan Roller, WGM Tata of Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William H. Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Storyanov. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.